don't want everyone to sleep better at night everywhere else thinking that they've saved the Arctic. Instead, we want to be able to use common sense to make good decisions about the development in our region. Welcome to Applied Geopolitics, the podcast series from the Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics at RAIN. I'm your host, Roger Baker. The United States has issued a new national strategy for the Arctic region, the first update in nearly a decade. The tone is far different, highlighting Arctic competition rather than cooperation and raising Russia and China as challengers in the Arctic region. The new strategy also increases its focus on coordination and collaboration with the Alaskan Native community, recognizing the difficulty and significance of increased Arctic infrastructure and sustainable economic development opportunities. I'm happy to be joined today by Julie Kitka, the President of the Alaskan Federation of Natives, and Richard Glenn, former Vice President and Board Member of the Arctic Slope Regional Corporation. Julie and Richard, thank you for joining me today. You're welcome. Thank you for inviting us, Roger. Yes, thank you. So as we as we look at this, I think I want to get to start off with giving you an opportunity. Um, can you explain sort of the unique role of the Alaskan Native communities in in thinking about the U.S. Arctic um, and maybe a little focus on uh, ANCSA and the Native corporations to help contextualize uh, for us as we go into this discussion about the Arctic? Uh, yes, Roger, be glad to, to start on that. Um, I have the honor of serving as the president of the Alaska Federation of Natives, which is an umbrella organization of the Alaska Native people in Alaska. Uh, Alaska Natives are numerous ethnic groups, not just one particular one. Um, we make up about 20% of the population in the state, and because of our Congressional land claim settlement in 1971, uh, we were able to retain ownership of 44 million acres of our land, which makes us the largest private landowners in the state, followed uh, in land ownership between the federal government and the state government. So Alaska Natives have a very significant role in all levels of governance and development in the state, both from our population size, our ownership, and uh, plus the unique role that we were uh, required to do in our land claims. And what's a significant aspect of that is Congress mandated that we form for-profit corporations and have our land that we selected and our resources in those corporations in both regional corporations and village corporations and basically um, engage in uh, the larger economic system. So we are among the unique Native Americans and indigenous people around the world that have had almost 50 years of immersion in capitalism and trying to adjust capitalism and have it be flavored with our values and our goals and our aspirations, but it definitely makes it a very different environment for us in Alaska because of our unique governance structure, our unique path to self-determination. It's also a very exciting time for the Native community. Richard? Yeah, that that's a good summary, Julie, and there's a couple of, of unique aspects. Uh, you know, the Native people of the United States span 
uh, cover the entire footprint of, of the, the political boundary of the United States but and beyond. For example, you'll, you'll find tribes with members on both sides of the U.S.-Canadian border and elsewhere. And it's the same here in Alaska, which, which means we have uh, the Arctic setting, basically, the, the circumpolar north is home to indigenous tribes, nations of people, and yet uh, by many threads we're related by blood by uh, two people across the border. So although it seems like a faraway place, it's a close place because the um, footprint of native people in the Arctic doesn't pay attention or, you know, it predates uh, the international boundaries that we see today. And the second thing is the world might be looking more at the Arctic these days because of its strategic importance. And that's basically happening again. Julie, as Julie can attest, the Alaska's native people have been involved in volunteering their expertise and their homeland for the defense of the country for, for generations. And here we are again, and with a new look toward the Arctic and its strategic importance, again, the native people of Alaska are, they have a front row seat to the international drama that's going on and affecting people at, at in the lower lower latitudes, the lower 48, um, Europe, Asia, and everything. As soon as you move north, everything telescopes uh, northward. And, and what started off as a faraway issue becomes an issue that's very close. Well, it's interesting as you raise this, you know, as we, as we look at the the attention to the Arctic, um, most of the, at least the perception of identification of strategic risk and strategic threat, um, as well as policy development, comes from the, the, the national capitals. And if we look at the Arctic region, obviously there's, you know, the national capitals are often very far from the Arctic territories that, that uh, they, they control or that are part of those countries. Um, in in the lower 48, obviously, there are concerns with what's going on in Russia and Ukraine, um, concerns about the strategic competition between the United States and Russia, the United States and China. Um, clearly, it's being felt on a tactical, personal level in issues like oil prices. Um, how does that strategic competition manifest itself in the, in the Arctic region? What are the ways in which you see... Um, that as as you talk about it, just kind of focusing or concentrating up in those in those uh, higher latitudes. How does it how is it visualized, and what is the impact as you look at that? Um, not only on the concept of national security, but on the way in which it it shapes or interacts with the the native community or the Alaskans themselves. Well, I'll go ahead and and start responding on that, and Richard chime in. Um, when we look at U.S. policy. Um, on the Arctic and the and the recent national security um, document that came out, what what strikes us is um, our feeling of a sense of urgency and our feeling that things need to be done in the next sixty days, in the next hundred and eighty days, the next six months, and it, it's hard to conceptualize a ten year plan with the rapid change that are, is going. And I'll use two examples on that one. Uh, 
no one expected a pandemic and how quickly it went from five cases in the United States to millions of cases. Um, you look at the technology changes and um, the, the rapid um, developments and the exponential, how it builds on itself um, is, is very much magnified in the Arctic. What we also see is in U.S. policy dealing with the pandemic and the economic recovery that was needed, the massive federal investment uh, in the United States to try to pull us out of the, uh, the, the economic collapse in many parts of the country has unleashed unprecedented amount of resources which Alaska Natives are actually competing with other tribes across the country to try to get uh, with not a lot of recognition that the basic infrastructure that we need is non-existent. So, for example, in broadband, where you may be in a reservation in one part of the country and you have had access to broadband for a long time, we have many parts of the state that, that do not. Um, and so the, the catch-up on the infrastructure, um, but also dealing with the rapid change, uh, the climate change, and what it's doing to our coastal areas, how it is increasing wildfires, uh, the uh, melting of the, the permafrost, the erosion, uh, many, many challenges that we're dealing with all simultaneously, let alone the geopolitical challenges of the conflict of the Russian aggression in Ukraine, and the economic sanctions and the fact that the private sector went beyond the required economic sanctions to go further on that. All those things are, are magnified in our economy, also magnified in our, our activities on trying to rebuild our economy here in Alaska. And one lack of sensitivity on the national one that gets to be a casualty of the um, environmental considerations is the vital role that Alaska plays in oil and gas in energy security for our country um, and we just can't overstate the critical role that Alaska's oil and gas industry and our natural resources contribute to the the well-being of our country and its security and Alaska natives are very involved in that because we're like I said major landowners of surface and subsurface we're also involved in oil and gas we're involved in mineral development um, other aspects on that. We see areas that we can contribute to the economic security of our country, and there doesn't seem to be a recognition of the need to fast-track that aspect. All, all true, valid points, Julie. And, um, you know, there's, there's 200 tribes in Alaska, and as, as you said, Roger, the, the United States, you know, with a um, political epicenter in Washington, D.C., that rarely thinks about Alaska. And in truth, I think Alaska itself rarely thinks about the Arctic portion of Alaska. And the, the Arctic uh, definition of the boundary of what is in the Arctic and what is not is, is, is different depending on who you talk to or what agency is listening. But, but the fact that we have this issue of remoteness from centers of gravity it's true for us it's true for canadians or uh to a lesser degree but ottawa you know does does not really 
take every step with uh, um, the Arctic coastline in mind. And, and so if you have a remote capital away from the, the place that's where, where you are centered, you're always fighting for a voice and fighting for legitimacy. And in our case, fighting for basic things that most people around the world take for granted. And, and so that, that's a struggle, an education struggle. Um, the, the geography is huge. Uh, you know, the size of, of the uh, state is, is, is a lesson to most people. And, and, and we have no roads, no infrastructure, uh, just these tiny little footprints of communities around which, you know, all of our ancestors have been born and raised and lived and died and scattered in scattered uh, even more remote settlements that, that, that don't ever make it to a map. And and yet, so so it's our home. So so for some people, it's remote. For us, it's the center. And uh, and yet, we see the uh, the contrails of of Russian jets in the sky sometimes, and the U.S. responding. We see the Chinese icebreakers coming north, and they're just miles off our coastline. Uh, uh, as researchers, they say they're doing research and. And so we have a front row seat to this drama of, uh, of international political leverage being played around us. And our communities are uh, surviving. They need to survive. They're, they're, uh, I think for the most part you won't find ourselves calling ourselves victims of any of these worldwide trends. Instead, we, we've adapted, we continue to adapt and adjust and move, and, and, and yet it, it, does, um, it carries a cost. And so the issue of you know, the stereotypical Arctic um, setting in everyone's imagination always needs refreshing and always needs uh, the reality check, you know, that... Um, um, Every community, no matter where they are, from, from the Everglades to the Olympic Peninsula and all the way up to the U.S. Arctic, every community needs safe homes, uh, an economy to come home to, an economy that supports its region, good schools, reliable power, uh, running water, healthy, healthy uh, waste alternatives. And, and so, our, you know, our struggle is not unusual to anybody but it's unusual in that uh, we have to carry that struggle onto a national stage and, and overcome so many stereotypes. Yeah, as, as you look at this, this geography, this space, um, the, the American Arctic, um, yeah, as you note, there's different definitions of the Arctic, whether it's just north of the Arctic Circle, whether you run it by... Uh, assessing the Arctic by certain um, uh, uh, temperature gradients or whether it's by where particular plants grow or whether it's an expanded uh, definition of the Arctic to count uh, a lot of the waters in and around the Aleutian Islands. It does create a little confusion as to uh, what one is defining um, uh, specifically as the Arctic. Um, and and the other thing I think that's interesting as you bring up is the the idea of um, that you both brought up is the idea of the strategic um, minerals that are in Alaska, the the energy and things of that sort. 
you know, as, even if the United States is going through an energy transition, um, it may decide over time that it needs to utilize less oil, gas, hydrocarbons, but it needs minerals. And Alaska is, is, a, is a, a mineral rich region as well. Um, what, um, what, you know, you've, you've both mentioned a little bit about the economics. Can you discuss a little bit about what role the um, Alaskan native corporations play, not only in the local communities, but in the the regional and national, uh, and even I understand international level, um, and how those may interact, um, you know, how those may be able to support uh, U.S. strategy as it's looking at um, this this shift, this new attention back to the Arctic. Yeah, that's a good question, and uh, as uh, Julie summarized in the beginning, the Alaska Alaska Native people never really lost their lands in any in any battle with. Uh, the Russians or the United States eventually, and never, never really signed away their rights in treaties, as as you watched, you know, the history unfold across, from the east coast to the west coast of the lower forty-eight states. You can find many versions of 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 that going on. Instead, um, they the issue of Aboriginal title, which is land ownership that doesn't exist on paper, but was never never ceded away to anyone, was not resolved until Richard Nixon was president and the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act was formed. And But uh, just imagine what happened before then, right? We had the, the um, Second World War. We had the uh, the dawning of kind of a social awareness in the 60s. And, and so that at some point, the issue of uh, who owns the land, whose land is it, how are we going to resolve these issues, had to intersect with the growing state. Alaska became a state in 1959. And the result was this Native Claim Settlement Act. And with it, um, the, in, with the intent of avoiding the Indian reservation style that, that, that exists in the lower 48 states, the government tried to instead grant some acreage to each of the native groups and grant some cash in, in offer of a settlement probably for the extinguishment of the aboriginal title which means you know a hundred percent of the land that we claim well you're only going to get ten percent well here comes in the offer of a cash settlement an, ef- an effort to extinguish that title and with that cash and with that land base our native uh, entities were supposed to basically join the uh, capitalist system, use the land base, use the cash settlement uh, to bootstrap themselves as groups into a world economy. And uh, the story is different for different regions, but everybody tried to make the best of it. Uh, it was the law of the land. It was it was beyond. The, the the fight against it was was a losing fight it it passed and and so the the native groups have been um, using that as their foothold ever since that day in terms of 
uh, economic development. And so in some areas, there's mining going on. In some other areas, oil and gas production. In some regions had timber. You know, we started with basic raw resource development, but since then have uh, developed into a, a hundreds of sophisticated companies in uh, involved in enterprises around the world and um, the, the region that I come from is the Arctic Slope region, which is the northern tier of Alaska. Is is the uh, the Arctic Slope Regional Corporation is the largest privately owned corporation in Alaska, and is involved in almost in every state of the union in some kind of commercial enterprise, all for the benefit of the shareholders who were alive at the day of the settlement of the act and their descendants. And so we, we, uh, we engage in for-profit uh, activities and return value back to our shareholders, we call them, which is the native people of our region, and, and return benefits to them in the form of dividends and programs and, and other, um, other ways to positively affect their way of life. But all that being said, that's a great story all by itself. This is the 50th anniversary of, of the Settlement Act. And, and, and beautiful things happen. Uh, some successes, some failures. Um, but what, what I'm trying to say is, in addition to all of that, what we needed and continue to need in our home region is an economy to come home to. We could have as, uh, a diverse corporation with many benefits and its dividends will not build a town. Its dividends will not build an economy, a regional economic uh, a future all by itself. So uh, we need we need something in our region, just like the rest of America needs, to be the engine upon which our local economies form. And in some parts of Alaska, that's um, oil and gas development, like in my region, and, and, and it, it's different everywhere. Um, and as you mentioned, Roger, the, for example, in the um, Seward Peninsula area, we've got we've got what might be the, one of the world's largest graphite deposits, you know, which will uh, come to the forefront as a strategic mineral in and of itself. We've got the world's largest uh, lead and zinc mine in the northwest Alaska. And and so, you know, in different areas of the state, there's these immense opportunities for economic development. And cobble them all together, in addition to the big city uh, enterprises and the presence of uh, military bases and other things, and you have to make a kind of a quilt that becomes the state economy. And so, yeah, Alaska's native people figure into that prominently, and they're not shy about it. They're going to try to continue to grow their enterprises because uh, our population is growing. We have more people that we need to return benefits to every year. Well, and one of the things that I would add, um, as far as the native people of Alaska, is our aspirations, what we want in life um, we're very much um, driven to not just survive, but thrive in our environment. We have great aspirations for our children and grandchildren. That's why 
we threw so much of our efforts into implementation of our land claims is we knew that we could master that whole system and thrive. Uh, we take a look at the current challenges that are manifesting themselves today, and there are a lot of challenges in real time going on. Um, I believe we're in a real pivotal moment in history with these security challenges facing us. Um, our view is relationships and partners with others is how we're going to get through these challenges. We can't do it on our own. None of our other partners or relationships can do it on their own. But together we can do things and we can confront these challenges and we can not just survive, but we can thrive. Um, again, uh, not only do you have military challenges from the Native community, you have a history of the largest participation of any ethnic group in the United States in active duty military, but also a real affinity in honor for the people that serve in the military. We really have a lot of respect for them and we know that they are doing what is in the best interests of our country, but is the right thing to do. And so it's the affinity that we have with them. Um, many of our cultures are warrior cultures where people really respect people that um, sacrifice themselves and are uh, willing to do things for the benefit of the whole. And that that's how we view the military presence in our state on that. A lot of dedicated people that are putting their lives on the line and serving, and it, it's something that we respect. Um, on the relationships, our goal has been for the U.S. military and the government to not view us as dots on a map, but to get behind the dots on a map of our villages or communities and see real people and to bring to their attention the real capabilities that we have, whether or not it's our tribal uh, governments, our tribal consortiums, our tribal health system, uh, our involvement in the social service sector and compacting the federal programs, which we've been on the leading edge for decades, to the capabilities of our corporations and what we can bring to the table. So we, we really want people to, again, break up those stereotypes of what they think indigenous people might be and take a look at who we really are and try to match up these capabilities to uh, partner to deal with these challenges. We'll get right back to our conversation with Julie Kitka and Richard Glenn in a moment. This podcast is part of our knowledge sharing series from the Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics at Rain. Along with training, education, and certification, the Stratfor Center is a global center of excellence for geopolitical intelligence and analysis. Connect with us today at rainnetwork.com. Now, let's get back to the Arctic. I know that the Alaska Federation of Natives has been uh, involved not merely in sort of being a participant at dialogues um, in the region, but has been driving dialogues and focus on, on coordination with the military, coordination with industry, coordination with government, um, and, and taking that proactive role um related to that uh for 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 both of you you know when we look at china china has redrawn its physical maps to to emphasize to its own population uh its claim on the south china sea and and key territories um R russia uses these ideas of of um 
traditional territory and, and social ideas to be able to create a consciousness both of, you know, you know, the Russian activity in, in, in the, the Western side, but also, quite frankly, to integrate the Arctic as a critical component of Russian identity, that, that, that the Arctic is a piece of Russia and they're working on that. How do you see um, a, a way to, you know, reshape the U.S. identity for, you know, the, 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 the non-Alaskans to recognize the Arctic nature of the United States? Because as we look at these strategic documents the U.S. puts out and then you look at fulfillment over a decade or a decade and a half, and the the same infrastructure challenges from 2013 still exist. The the the, the new icebreakers still aren't there. The Arctic, you know, the 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 port above deep water port above the Arctic Circle doesn't exist yet. All of these challenges are still there, and obviously there there are many things that the United States is dealing with as a country and setting priority. But a big part is that most of the country doesn't sort of consider the U.S. an Arctic country. What are ways that you see of of shifting or adjusting that concept? So that it's not about, well, we just have to help those people up in Alaska, but it's about recognizing the Arctic nature of the United States and the strategic importance of that geography as a core component of the way in which Americans think about themselves. I I think, Roger, one of the first things is maps. Um, Most Americans grew up seeing Alaska as a little box on the bottom of the chart of the United States and Hawaii in a little shop, in a little box, but Alaska. So they have no comprehension from the educational system of how massive Alaska is and how we actually make up one fifth of the land mass of the United States. And so I think mapping, um, I think public officials, um, more um, communication, more coming up here, more um, um, visibility into um, what is really going on here? I, I I do think that the the Russian aggression in Ukraine and the economic sanctions and the the further private sector sanctions on that is going to naturally draw more attention to the Arctic as one you you not only see some potential conflict up here and aggressive moves on that, but as people look at where are you going to get the oil and gas, where are you going to get the resources and Alaska is one of the um, few places which has such an abundance on that. So I, I do think eventually there'll be more attention given on that. But it, you're really overcoming a lot of barriers for people growing up looking at that little box. Yeah, I agree with the value of of, of geography, and uh, I, I and I've used maps. Uh, in an effort to try to overcome the, the the distance that exists between people's understanding of where we live and what it's really like, and and one of them it puts the Arctic coastline, just the northern part of the Arctic Alaskan uh, coastline, uh, and, and it overlays it against the eastern seaboard, and it goes it 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 goes from New York, New Jersey, all the way down past Savannah, Georgia. And in terms of you know the span of coastline and right about where Chesapeake Bay is, is right about where Point Barrow or Utqiarvik is, the the uh, northernmost point of Alaska. And if you convince people that look, you know, we live in a big country 
We have sparse communities, no roads connect them, but it's not that much different than yours. You know, the barrier islands of, of the Beaufort Sea are very similar to the barrier, barrier islands of the Mid-Atlantic states or the Gulf states in uh, Texas, Louisiana. And if you if you can find common ground like that by, by showing uh, where we come from and its similarities to to where, basically where this country started, then then you've made progress. Um, but it, it really uh, is eye-opening to look at, it, it, just imagine from uh, New Jersey all the way to Savannah, only a handful of communities along the coastline. It'd be as if uh, Plymouth, uh, Boston, um, Roanoke, and one or two more other communities were all that was allowed to develop on the eastern seaboard and everything else was basically bottled up in a jar by some legal uh, artifice. But that's kind of like where the uh, Alaskan coastline has been trapped. It's, uh, uh, it's, it's a handful of small communities along the Arctic edge and, and all the way around the state, basically. And uh, in most people's mind's eye, they, they just think it's okay for it all to stay that way. While the rest of the country has grown from east to west, there's an effort by many to uh, try to husband Alaska away from development, economic development, geographic development, infrastructure development, that that the rest of the country is already bought and paid for in its own backyard. And so, so yeah, the maps are helpful. They show, one, the geographic uh, similarities, but they also show the enormous disparity. You know, there's, there's more miles of road in, a given, in any given county than there is probably in our whole state. That's just an example, right? And we don't want everyone to sleep better at night everywhere else thinking that they've saved the Arctic from themselves or from ourselves. Instead, we want to be able to use common sense to make good decisions about the development in our region. And I think it's, it's possible. It happens in, in bites and chunks, and it's start and stop, but it, it does happen. I spent a, a week in Washington, D.C. years ago trying to think about how would you define the Arctic on a whiteboard. What, 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 uh, what are your criteria for defining it? And I thought about... If you live in a part of the world where the ocean freezes annually, uh, where there's no trees, um, and where there's this um, seasonal disparity in daylight and darkness, because for you know a couple months out of the year the sun doesn't rise, and in the summer for a couple months the sun doesn't set, and I, I kind of use that as the beginning of a definition, but as you look around our region, it's so diverse. And so um, uh, in abundance with, with many, many resources, people, cultures, communities, and expert, Arctic expertise, the expertise about the environment lives in our region, in, in our state, among the many village and community members that, that, that are out there every day. And if you start there, if you start, you know, by not thinking of the of it as far away, but as basically the center, then you're on the way. And, I'm, we, and we have friends and relatives uh, 
If we look to the left and the right, across all the borders, even across the Russian border, you know the guys who just uh, uh, escaped uh, one of the Russian villages in a boat and came to St. Lawrence Island, they were trying to dodge what would be conscription for them. But chances are, you know, they went they went from a town with one set of relatives to a town of, of, of the same family members that just happened to be divided by the Cold War boundary, the international dateline. And the same is true as far as um, kinship if you cross the, into the Canadian border and all the way to Greenland. Basically, there's a swath of indigenous people that uh, that are related by lifestyle and geography and family and kinship that um, it it outstrips any single national interest and and yet we're we're home and witness to these great struggles on on, on a national scale uh, my dad was a, a was a a cryptologist in the Cold War days on the dew line ra- radar stations that were watching for um, Russian planes to come over the over the pole, and that 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 was an effort that was built right after the discovery of radar as a tool, and right after World War II ended. And he worked from Greenland all the way through the Arctic Canadian communities and all the way along the northern coast of Alaska. Uh, on these radar facilities and today the technology is different instead of just looking at a, a blips on a radar screen we're looking over the horizon with uh, much more powerful and, and satellite based technology and yet the issues many of the issues are still the same national security um, familiarity with the Arctic environment working together to make our communities better to make our um, na- our defense efforts in the Arctic stronger, and and so the tools are different. The times have changed, but many of the issues are still the same. To build on that, um, there's lots of things that are underway right now as we speak, um, which will help in that. And one of those is the the expansion of broadband um, across the state and the federal investment um, to ensure that the entire state is covered, uh, both with um, fiber optic cable as well as satellite coverage. Um, That's going to make a big change. Uh, There's a proposal in for a U.S. ambassador to the Arctic that will add greater visibility. I would suggest that uh, the current negotiations on a new trade agreement between Canada and the United States is an opportunity for the administration and, and the Congress on that to improve things. Um, also would suggest that um, the U.S. initiating a free trade agreement of indigenous people all across the North would be one way to strengthen ties and economic and, and familiar ties across the Arctic. And then the U.S. upgrading its consulate in Greenland to have a a full ambassador to Greenland and hopefully an indigenous person from Alaska as that ambassador. There's lots of things that the administration and the Congress can do that can turn this around and that can build further deep strength within the native communities all across the Arctic and build those relationships, but also let people develop. Uh, We all want a peaceful um, calm Arctic. We, we aren't urging conflict. 
Um, but we know that there are challenges and those challenges are real. But these type of things that they can do can set in place mechanisms that the U.S. government can initiate to strengthen that. But I will raise one issue that hasn't come up yet, and that is the issue of fish protein. Um, we have seen, um, well, for one, uh, the fish protein that's produced and exported from Alaska is phenomenal amounts of high-quality seafood. Uh, we do see that as a flashpoint um, with the warming of the oceans and the migration of fish stocks on that, increased competition and potential conflict on that. So the whole issue of fish, fish protein, and food security um, is really, really important um, and will be a long-term challenge that we'll be all dealing with and facing. And the Congress dealing with the reauthorization of the Magnuson-Stevens Act is also another area in which they could put some uh, provisions in that could try to strengthen um, ownership and, and um, structures in place to support food security. Yeah, you beat me to the punch on, uh, on, on the fish, Julie. Um, we, we, we see this concept both of um, food security, of the importance of maritime protein, uh, and of the, the greater focus by the United States internationally on concepts of IUU fishing, right? Illegal, unregulated, unreported fishing. Um, there's a, there is agreement right now, international agreement, about uh, refraining from fishing in the Central Arctic region. Um, but, you know, there, there have been, uh, you know, as we've seen, Chinese fishing fleets moving right up uh, close to the Aleutians. Uh, the, the, the Ukraine crisis created a, a spat between Russia and Japan over, over certain fish. And, and um, fish don't respect borders. Um, they don't care about borders. And as we're seeing adjustments in climate, we're seeing uh, already certain types of uh, uh, fish, crabs, certain types of seafood start to shift its primary location. Um, and that's going to be a, a, a major contributor to maybe not always conflict, but it certainly changes where uh, primary food resources are. Um, and again, as those start moving in and around international borders, it alters potential opportunity and potential risk. And and I know that, uh, I think it, it was this year or last year, there was the, the issue of the... Um, the fishing fleets that ended up uh, in the middle of Russian military maritime exercises, right? Yes. Um, and then further, um, we note where um, as you're, you're monitoring what Russia is doing and their aggression in Ukraine and ways that they're adapting of them. I saw a news report of them picking up the Chinese model of dual flagging their fishing fleet to both military and fishing on that. That creates something to watch for in international waters all around Alaska. Um, so, no, I, I think that the whole issue of food security and fish protein um, is underappreciated by many people and, and will continue to be a very um, dominant big issue. Um, when we talk in Alaska often on food security, we're talking about our families having fish in their freezers or dried fish on their fish racks and are have the stores to last through the winter. When you talk to the state on food security, they're talking about the reliability of the port system and be able to have 
um, foods on the grocery store shelves and um, the concern with uh, the Port of Alaska and if there was a disruption, how quickly that would trigger a food security issue. So you have people talking different things, meaning different things by food security. For the Native community, we absolutely understand what food security is and our people want to be self-sufficient in providing for our own foods, not just recipients of food. So um, the continuing of our, of our subsistence way of life is very important for our cultural survival. We see that also impacting um, uh, search and rescue in different situations as you have fish shortages in areas. You see our, our fishermen and, and hunters moving over to other areas to be opportunistic to capture resources to feed their families for the winter and run up against um, um, ice freeze-up that's sooner than they're used to or different conditions and then get into um, trouble um, which which calls upon our search and rescue systems to be much more responsive and not just set in the way that they do things now location-wise, but to really pay attention to where people move around for food security, the movement of the people. Um, so I do think that the food security is, is very, very important. What you also see in the Native community is the desire to have greater decision-making role um, on fish and game and resources. They don't want just the state or federal government to manage it. Uh, they want a co-management role. They want to be involved in making decisions. They um, uh, want to build up opportunities for their young people um, to be biologists and and so forth on that, but to have a real decision-making role and update the the systems, the regulatory systems, to be much more responsive. I heard a really interesting comment of what the best thing that the United States could do on regulation, and that was described as designing regulations at the speed of innovation. And I, I think that if the U.S. took that to heart, that you've got to get out of the old-style system of regulations where you're just controlling everything but to have a much more flexible regulatory system and much more sharing of decision-making, in particular on fish and game, um, I think would do the state and the federal governments really well. That's a timely point. You'll read in today's newspaper, for example, that Alaska's um, canceled its crab fishery for the second season in a row because of a drastic decline in, in the red crab and snow crab. These are the animals they're catching on TV shows like Deadliest Catch and uh, 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 huge fluctuations in, in, in measured crab population forced the uh, Alaska side of the Bering Sea to shut down the crab fishery. Nobody really knows what's going on on the other side of the, uh, of the border where um, international fishermen, Russians and others might be catching uh, and not following the same rules. And the same exists for the entire Yukon River, which is basically like the Mississippi River turned uh, east-west. But the salmon fishery inside the river is in a drought right now and has been for many years. And nobody's ever really given a good answer as to whether the fish have uh, changed naturally their population or they're being hijacked 
by uh, um, people who we don't know, uh, in uh, you know, out of out of foreign trawlers and others, uh, before they even make it to the mouth of the river, they're they're caught. Are they being caught somewhere in in the high seas, for example? And how many are fish are wasted as bycatch uh, and and just thrown over the side because they they were caught while they were trying to catch something else. And meanwhile, you have hundreds of communities that don't see the fish runs that they used to see, uh, and and they're the they're the ones who are being denied a subsistence harvest, food on their table, food in their freezer, uh, because of uh, uh, basically unregulated stuff going on in out in the open seas. So food security. Uh, just talking about fish and crab is two two examples that you'll read about in in, in new, uh, current newspaper articles is huge and um, every uh, Native Alaskan every Alaskan community member has an intimate familiarity with food se- security food acquisition uh, because the uh, you know the safe ways that exist in most big cities in the United States don't exist in our smaller villages, and and so um, we know what it takes. You know for butchering, whether it's a land animal or a sea animal or a fish or a mammal, and and we know that means we know we know the life cycle of that animal, its migration schedule, and how much of it is needed to sustainably uh, feed our people and. That kind of intimacy with the environment breeds an expertise that that's um, difficult to match in um, modern communities in the lower 48 states. Yeah, I think that's definitely an issue we'll have to explore further. I think we're 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 running up against time here, um, but but clearly there's a few things that that we'll want to look at down the road. One is thinking again about that that concept of the how do we define the Arctic and what are the Arctic connections that are that are not constrained by political borders, but what are those cross-Arctic elements? But in a, in a quick sentence or two, how would you define the, the, the strategic importance of the Arctic and of the American Arctic from both a inside-out local perspective and maybe as a way to help frame it for um, the nation as well? This is a question we frequently get in, and so the, an- the answer becomes kind of a, a riff, I think. You know, what, what's, what is pushing us at the moment? What is the issue of the day? Uh, the Arctic is a crossroads, as far as I see it. Everything is closer from the Arctic than it is to anywhere else, and all it takes is to uh, peel an orange and to put it on a, on a flat piece of paper, and you can realize that the top of every orange slice meets at, at you know at at the uh, top of the fruit. And to me, that's the that's the the way the Arctic is. It's closer to everything else than anywhere else, and people become infatuated with certain aspects of it. And yet, there there is a a, a real nitty gritty, hard, cold fact side to the whole thing. If you look at a map of how many planes are in the air, just take a look at how many of them fly over the North Pole at, at any given time. Or if you look at um, uh, the, the current issues of, of national security. But it doesn't take away the fact that it's our home. 
and in my region it's very very easy to see up until like the 1920s the concept of burying your dead for example didn't exist so when we go out hunting on the tundra we cross the bones of our ancestors frequently every place in Alaska has been crossed by the feet of our ancestors and uh, I spent a lot of time talking for example with my grandfather and I, I moved around uh, by snow machine and boat and eventually by helicopter when I was doing some work looking for minerals and every place I went using these modern tools my grandfather had been by dog team every fabric every part of every region is that we we cover huge geographic swaths so that everything that looks pristine on on the uh, eco group website for example we know is not pristine we know it has been occupied by our ancestors and and other groups countless generations the arctic is inhabited with hundreds of tribes of people who are intimate with their environment and we try and we're trying to build modern communities in that setting and and modern communities depend on power plants and schools fire protection health services clean water and and to do that in our region it takes great effort and i think the best people to make decisions about what happens in the region are the people that live in that region i think to to complete richard's thinking on that the the one thing that i would convey is as you take a look at the future and the challenges that we're facing there's a lot of uh indigenous knowledge that can be shared um to solve problems and to build relationships we already talked about the um relationships alaska natives have across canada greenland and russia um but we also have affinity and relationships with maori and new zealand and native hawaiians in hawaii i mean the 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 cultural ties and relationships extend all around the world but there is a an intrinsic value from our cultures and our indigenous knowledge and our value system of how we can solve problems that could um be just really an undiscovered treasure for the united states if they um invested in bringing alaska natives into the decision making process we might be able to help follow find solutions that that were invisible before that we're able to make visible um i just know our people uh strive for greater and greater self determination we want to um thrive in our homeland we want to make decisions we don't want to be recipients of somebody else's decisions and and just sit there passive um we have agency and we make decisions and take actions on our own and uh there's just a way that that can be harnessed within the United States with mutual respect and working together um that i think that could could help us address some of these challenges as i said alaskanians are very interested in partnerships and relationships and building those ties uh that can last for a long time so uh, that's the only other thing i would add all right well i thank you both for uh taking some time with me here today well thanks very for nice having us talking with you roger we'll continue to address issues of the arctic both from a sort of a strategic outside in view but also i think from this very important inside out view 
uh, as we go forward. I want to thank you all for listening. We've been talking today with Julie Kitka, the president of the Alaska Federation of Natives, and with Richard Glenn, the former vice president and board member of the Arctic Slope Regional Corporation. For more on the Arctic, for more on other strategic issues, and for more on some of these alternative viewpoints and, and trying to tease together from multiple perspectives and understanding of some of these strategic issues in the world, visit rainnetwork.com and sign up for alerts and information from the Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics at Rain. That's rainnetwork.com, R-A-N-E, network.com. I'm Roger Baker. Thanks for listening. <music>